Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast, where you can find us on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you're getting our podcasts. If you found us, we appreciate it. It's November 2nd, a Tuesday. We talk later on in the podcast about the minimum wage being raised in Ontario to $15, higher than it was, not as high as many obviously want it to be. And we talk about kids and vaccines and an important note when it comes to off-ramps. Where are we going? What is... I guess the way I can put it is the deadline to go certain places and lift certain restrictions. And are kids and vaccinations really going to alter that much with hospitalizations and deaths? I'm going to quote you uh, a read from The Atlantic and Sarah Zhang, who's been on our show previously, that suggests, no, it won't make that much difference at all. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, and it doesn't mean parents shouldn't have the option. Lots more to come on the podcast as well, including the very latest Gary Bettman's comments on the Chicago Blackhawks. We talked to a minor hockey coach, Brad Legassi, about that and more. It's all coming up on the Toronto Today pod. I want to start here. COVID and vaccines for kids. You may be saying, when is that time? I'm trying to listen. I'm trying to get information. I'm a busy person. I'm here. I'm there. When can I get a shot into my kid's arm? Well, if you're in the United States, my prediction is just a prediction. That day's tomorrow. That day's tomorrow, and I'll tell you why. They are waiting today. Uh, The CDC will meet today to consider recommendations for giving the Pfizer vaccine to younger kids. It's a smaller dose. And you might say, wait a minute. You told me last week. I was listening last week. I never stopped listening. Thank you for that. The FDA cleared the shots already. You get about one-third of the vaccine given to adults, and kids can get it now. Right. But the FDA has to wait now. The FDA is the first hurdle to climb over. And then it's the CDC advisors and their agency director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, will give the final order. But they will. Here's what America knows already. And I'm not going to bang too hard on Canada for, you know, taking a, 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 what would we say, an abundance of caution or precaution. But there will be a limit to this. Here's how organized the states are about this. And by the way, here's why they came out of the gate roaring in January and February. And the people that were desperate to get shots didn't have to stress. There wasn't, they weren't running out like we were. There wasn't a big three-week gap where it felt like, do you remember that gap around early, mid-January where it felt like nobody was getting vaccinated in Canada? And let's not forget, by the time spring came along, two bad things happened. Two bad things happened that you might remember. One was... Um, you know, basically the, the the lockdowns were extreme. I think I would call them inhumane. I think they affected all of our mental health when, uh, and I'll reference it again, golf courses, tennis courts, playgrounds for a day. Uh, that was the health minister's idea. She's in charge of health, like all health, not just COVID health. And on that Friday, she said, let's shut playgrounds down. And there was enough of a fuss about it that they reversed course on Saturday. The Solicitor General said, let's stop people in their car and ask them where they're going and ask them what they're doing out. And cops said, we're not doing that. You do that yourself if you feel like it. I'm not sure they said that, but you get my point. We can't wait too long after the United States is ready to go. They have an abundance of vaccines. They've got 67 million doses ready to go for 28 million kids. That means some will spoil. Some will get, you know, the two shots that are a third of the volume of a shot you and I get in the 5 to 11 age group. They're not mandating this in most states, and they're not mandating this in most school boards. They're giving parents the choice, and they can already go and be ready to go to pediatricians' offices. That's what I want to hear. That's the one thing I haven't heard yet uh, in Canada is 
how we're going to do this. And I'm not, you know, scrambling around with my with like, a you know, the proverbial chicken with his head cut off frantic about this. But I do think there's a sense of urgency, public health messaging at the federal level, to be honest, and at the Toronto city level and in the middle at the provincial level has been rather disastrous. I'm sorry. That's what it's been like. You've taken people who it was not never their job to communicate and 36 million people in Canada or 16 million people in Ontario or 4 million people in Toronto hanging on every word that they say they were never meant for that. They were never built for that. They were never trained for that. I'm not sure anybody is at the end of the day. Some people pay no attention to politics until it affects them directly. And that's cool. But COVID-19 has affected all of us. It's why we seem so frazzled and frantic about a lot of stuff that we just can't control. I want to play you a clip of Dr. Scott Gottlieb. We'll have him on the show, by the way, next week. Um, I think he's been a very prominent voice in being uh, measured when it comes to COVID-19. He's an infectious disease specialist. He says something I want and I hope we'll hear in Canada about the kids vaccine start supplying the supply chain with vaccines. So they'll start shipping to pharmacies and also to doctor's offices. That's really going to be the innovation here is that the vaccine's being packaged in units small enough that a lot of pediatricians' offices should be able to take the vaccine and distribute it right in the comfort of a doctor's office. And then CDC is going to meet on November 2nd and 3rd. They're ultimately going to make a recommendation on who should receive the vaccine. And so once CDC makes that recommendation, assuming it goes well and there's a positive outcome, People could start getting the vaccine immediately after that. Yeah, all that is accurate. And and again, are we in a good place in Ontario with uh, with where we're at? Absolutely. We've got a wall of vaccination. It's protected most of our communities from COVID. You're much safer. Of course, there's going to be breakthrough cases. There's nothing that's absolute about medicine. And we've forgotten that. Some of us have anyway. But here's what Sarah Zhang writes in The Athletic. And this was a phenomenal op-ed. I'll get to the front of it. And read a little bit, because you're hearing me yap, yak on and on. Let's hear somebody smarter than me say exactly what I'm trying to say here in about a minute from now. But here's what she writes about pediatric vaccines. And this is a cautionary tale for us here as well. Sarah Zhang in The Athletic writes, Tying pediatric vaccinations to the end of restrictions doesn't necessarily make sense if we're trying to keep hospitalizations down. Vaccinating kids will protect them individually and help dampen transmission from and among them. But this policy lever simply has limited impact on hospitalizations. She's absolutely right about that. She goes on to say to prevent hospitals from being overwhelmed, the key group we need to stay focused on is the elderly. Now, I want you to take this stat. I know you you may not be going into work and there's a water cooler and a fridge and a coffee bar and whatnot, but take it and share it with somebody today. That's what I urge you to do. And this is, you know, encouraging vaccination among adults. If there are still any holdouts left, you know, I roll my eyes when it's, I don't have time. I don't know where to go. People speak foreign languages. What a bunch of demeaning garbage. And it's been garbage since basically April. There might have been a case to be made for that, that essential workers um, are, are being, you know, unable to take time off work. But nobody is unvaccinated right now. Um, unless it's by choice. Nobody doesn't have access to these things. And it's been like that for four months. And we've heard, again, I don't have the tolerance and the patience to listen to that argument anymore. But here's the stat I want you to take away here. The risk of hospitalization for an unvaccinated person over 80. You know anybody over 80? Think about who you know over 80. The risk of hospitalization for an unvaccinated person over 80 is 25 times that for an unvaccinated person under 18. 
A financial, this is a big one too, a Financial Times analysis of data from the UK found vaccinating 25,000 children had the same effect on hospitalizations as vaccinating just 800 adults over age 60. Isn't that incredible? 800 adults over age 60 is the same, vaccinating them is the same as vaccinating 25,000 kids. So I want our kids to have the, I want parents to have the choice to vaccinate their five to 11 year olds. If it puts them at ease, if it gives them peace of mind, if their elderly parents feel better about it, fantastic. Again, my parents are 76 and 78. They really don't want to be around unvaccinated people right now. And that includes any of their six grandkids and five of the six because of age, including mine are fully vaccinated, but there's still going to be that struggle. And I hope that we're not too far behind where the United States is going now. I've talked about this. Here's the essence of the entire article and opinion piece that Sarah Zhang wrote. She's been on the show before. I'd love to get her on and uh, amplify some of her thoughts in this piece. But the headline is, and I read you some of those hysterical, shrill tweets about Halloween uh, and parents thinking unvaccinated cold air is coming in and kids are going to be sneezing and coughing when I give them a a snack-sized coffee crisp. Give me a break. Don't open the door then and stop complaining about it. Do what you do and the rest of us will do what we do. But the headline is America has lost the plot on COVID. We're avoiding the hardest questions about living with the coronavirus long term. Let me read you really quick a paragraph from Sarah Zhang's piece. We know how this ends. The coronavirus becomes endemic and we live with it forever. But what we don't know and what the U.S. insert Canada here seems to have no coherent plan for. How are we supposed to get there? We've avoided the hard questions whose answers will determine what life looks like in the next weeks, months, and years. How do we manage the transition to endemicity? When are restrictions lifted and what long-term measures do we keep, if any, when we reach it? The answers were simpler when we thought we could vaccinate our way to herd immunity. And you remember this from government talking points. Vaccinate, vaccinate. That's our way out, folks, folks, friends, friends, folks. That's our way out. It's the vaccines. You got to govern like there aren't any vaccines. I said that last January. It's still partially true. She goes on to write, the Delta variant and waning immunity against transmission mean herd immunity may well be impossible, even if every single American, insert Canadian, gets a shot. So when COVID-related restrictions came back with the Delta wave, we no longer had an obvious off-ramp to return to normal. Are we still trying to get a certain percentage of people vaccinated? We ask this all the time, right? We want to get to 90%. The city's like 90%. John Tory, 90%, 90%. What happens when we get there? He doesn't say. Maybe he doesn't know. Or are we waiting until all kids are eligible, which I think is a good thing. We'll get there and kids will be eligible. And this is the important part here. Or for hospitalizations to fall and stay steady. The path ahead is not just unclear, it's non-existent. We're meandering around the woods because we don't know where to go. And that's how I feel when I watch our government uh, at every level talk about COVID. We don't know, and it's hard to predict. No one's got a crystal ball, but I'm all for getting uh, the case numbers out of the headlines. I don't have a mandate to, you know, make case numbers start stop being brought up on other shows. We're up, we're down, we're up, we're down. It's got so little to do with anything now. This is about who's getting sick. This is about what an endemic virus will do in the long term with vaccines available. None of these cases are created equal anymore. They might have been a year ago. They sure aren't now. Our next guest uh, writes for Politico. He's done so much uh, coverage in his career. Uh, Ryan Heath from Politico joins us. I also read Ryan worked for the European Commission in Brazil, Brussels. 
as a presidential speechwriter, and I'm so excited. I wish it was Brazil, Greg. Yeah, no, you don't. Was. I was just going to say because you've done probably ten times the world traveling I have. But I went to Brussels and Amsterdam as a like a 26 year old for Euro 2000, and I people said how was Amsterdam, and I said I like Brussels a lot better. I love Brussels is a underrated international city, is it not? It is, and I'm guessing you can't remember much of Amsterdam, Greg, but that is the way Amsterdam <laughs> intends itself to be. So I think that's a double win. I frankly. saw a lot of bikes that looked available for stealing, and the air smelled like like uh, like an Eagles concert. But besides that, I'm trying yeah. to think of a UK equivalent for a band where uh, the uh, a great uh, Pink Floyd. Uh, yeah, that would, that would work. I yeah. think they might have actually uh, ended up uh, <laughs> in jail a couple of times for that. I think so. For trying to cross into Canada, we're very uh, you know we're, we're very tight up here about that kind of stuff. At least we used to be. By the way, you write a pinned tweet for all my new followers from Canada. So. Um, I, I think a lot of Canadians applauded what you did because there was a tone of, um, how would I put it? Well, tone deafness and, and arrogance. I don't think there's a way to describe it otherwise. I'm saying it. You don't have to. From the Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland. Tell our listeners what happened um, w- with the media at the G20 in Rome that, that ticked you off. Yeah, so they have a series of press conference rooms at the summit venue. Uh, There were not many leaders willing to talk to journalists at the summit. I think they were still acting like they were up in an exclusive, isolated resort somewhere. But to her credit, Christian Freeland did schedule a press conference. Uh, I and my colleague turned up, and Politico um, is uh, traditionally American-based, but it's now German-owned, and we have a full team in Canada. So, of course, we wanted to be there for the Canadian press conference. Uh, We waited 45 minutes. She was very late to this press conference. (laughs) No problems. That's part of our job. We get through her opening speech, no problems. It's also part of the job. So an hour into this whole um, situation, uh, her flack then announces that only Canadians are allowed to ask questions. And and we weren't the only ones uh, sort of discriminated against there. We had some German reporters, some Portuguese reporters. People are interested to know what Canada does in the world. It's a G7 country. You guys are serious players in trade and so on. And and this guy was serious. He was going to check your Canadianness and make you go and stand up at a microphone at the back of the room so he could vet you before you'd be allowed to talk um, to your honorable uh, deputy prime minister. And she went along with it. She didn't say, hang on, no. I'll stick around for a couple of minutes and chat to these guys. She she just went along with the the regime. Did you feel like um you know I should include the word a more in my question or wear a flannel shirt or say Al- Alfonso <laughs> Davies is my favorite footballer in Europe right now starring for Bayern Munich. Did you think about sense. any of those I'm things? Not good. They would have caught me out in two <laughs> seconds. Uh, so so we decided we would just go in literally the front door. So when she stopped talking, we thought, okay, we'll just approach the podium. It's a two-second question. We just wanted to know why Canada had been objecting to a reference uh, to, you know, encouraging the Beijing Olympics as a sign of humanity or whatever. Um, and it was would have been a two-second answer. And and the, the press guy just dived in between us, talked really loudly so that she wouldn't be able to hear anything else that came out of our mouths, and then yanked her out of the room. And and she kind of pipped up, I'm sorry, as she was leaving. Uh, so, you know, I've got 5% sympathy, but not much more. Ryan Heath is joining us uh, from Political on Toronto today. Um, yeah, that that's an interesting one, because I would tell you that the Canadian Olympic team unveiled um, their their uniforms. Countries do that, right? Great Britain does that. The USA does that. So they're sponsored by Lululemon. Um, and they, but they pushed it out, pushed athletes out there, and they had to ask. Athletes are 
answering questions about Beijing, answering questions about human rights. And you're thinking, boy, if we're making, you know, honestly, random skiers and figure skaters do that, shouldn't the deputy prime minister be asked the same question at a major, major international summit? I would think so. 100%. That's her day job. But also, she is a former reporter. So I would hope there would be some greater recognition of what our job is to do as well. And second, she was a democracy activist. So she should be first in line to be willing to talk about this and take a stand. Give me your sense. I, I want to cut to what's going on in in, uh, in Glasgow right now uh, in, a, in a second. But give me your sense whether anything truly was you know, accomplished in Rome. I, I mentioned earlier there are there are commitments and there are pledges. A commitment's a little bit of a, a more serious thing than a pledge because a pledge can be verbal. A commitment's often on paper or or by the way, you ask you ask somebody to marry you and give them a ring. There is that. Um, did you hear more pledges than commitments? I I felt like I did, and that's what frustrated people who were watching. Uh, yes, I think that there was not a lot of forward movement on climate. But they didn't go backwards. They didn't sort of put all their, their commitments in a shredder, but there wasn't a lot of forward movement. Where there was real uh, action was around this global tax reform and making the world's largest companies pay a minimum of 15% tax in the countries where they're doing business, not squirreling it away at, at 1% in a tax haven somewhere. Um, the G20 didn't come up with that idea, but it does matter that mm. all of those folks sign on to it. The leaders did put their names and their faces to it. So if that actually happens, that is a big deal. The rest, it was really sideshow sort of stuff. Ryan Heath is joining us from Politico. Um, the fact that the Chinese uh, president isn't at uh, COP26. Um, does that speak volumes um, that we need India and China? We really need them on board or it matters very little what say, you know, I think it matters what Great Britain does with a much higher population in a concentrated area. But to us, it doesn't matter what a little country like Canada does with 36 million people for our planet if India and China aren't on board. Yeah, I think that is uh, my my home country of Australia takes the same attitude as well. I think I think we're at a situation now where everyone has to step up, but it is also at the same time true that unless the US and China can figure out their working relationship, and that's one of the reasons why President Xi isn't there in Scotland, um, we're not going to put all the pieces of this puzzle together. So it's another one of the reasons why India has been holding back. They say we didn't cause the problem. You need to give us more time to solve the problem because we're also not causing it to the same degree now. Um, and until the US and China are able, maybe they'll never get into lockstep, but until they can kind of move roughly at the same pace and in the same direction, you're going to see these same blockages. And, and we're not going to unblock it in Scotland this, ne this next 10 days. Ryan Heath is joining us uh, from Politico. Uh, again, a, a great follow on Twitter at Politico. Ryan, uh, many Canadians as documented have discovered him in the last three or four days. Um, let me ask you this about, uh, about the summit as a whole i'm i'm frustrated by stories about well you know wheelchair access for a, a minister of the israeli government it's not right but i worry that that um that you know access to get in there's too many people there there's covid regulations being broken i worry and i get frustrated with the media too i'm like why are we interviewing you know the the 0.4 amount of people that that don't want a vaccine and we don't talk about the 99.6 that does but it's what we do sometimes i get it is there a lot of exterior noise about this conference so far in just 24, 28 hours that kind of kind of takes the focus away from what everyone is there to do? Uh, yes. And there is a, there, it's a pity because I see it around other big events like the Olympics as well. Mm -hmm. So the media has a tendency to focus on what isn't working, especially at the beginning of a big event. 
And then you see it all the time. It settles down by sort of day two, day three, day four. Once you get through that initial hump and all of the teething problems, things basically end up working fine. It is a bit of a, I know I can't swear on morning radio, but it's a bit of a a bleep show uh, (laughs) when it comes to accommodation (laughs) where they clearly just do not have enough hotel rooms. Uh, Price gouging is going on for anyone who didn't book six, 12 months ago. Uh, So it's not well organized in that respect. Uh, But at the same time, these are existential life and death issues for a lot of countries. So we got to focus on that. And 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 mm. we have to do more problem solving. That That's our approach at Politico is focus on the people who are solving problems and tell you um, who is or isn't doing the solving. And, and that really has to be the focus on something as important as this climate issue. Well, I love Politico, so I'm already on board. You've probably also seen quite distracting was uh, CNN anchor Wolf Blitzer confusing Edinburgh for Glasgow <laughs> while he's actually in Edinburgh, Ryan. I think that's... Because no one can get the accommodation in Glasgow. Correct. Right? Again, I mean, that's a, a rookie error. You can't really do that when you're paid as much as Wolf Blitzer. But I understand where it comes from because so many people aren't even able to be in the main city where the conference is happening. And it's Wolf Blitzer. This isn't Trump screwing this up. Didn't, didn't Trump ask Boris Johnson? Uh, he asked somebody if Finland, uh, you know, was a part of the Soviet Union. Like, he didn't know that. So, you know, this is Wolf Blitzer. It's not Donald J. Trump, right? Exactly, exactly. Step it up, Wolf. Um, by the way, now, uh, you, you could reference this as well, but before you go, I don't want to jam you with something you hadn't thought of, but I think you're, this is well on your radar. This tension now with Australia and uh, and Macron from France, that's a big deal. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if we're talking like when England and Argentina played in the World Cup in the, you know, in, in the shadow of the Falkland Islands battle, but it's not, we, I think we want to see France and Australia play in a World Cup or something significant to see if there's any tension on the pitch. Oh, yeah. And this goes way back. This goes back to the French doing nuclear testing in the 1990s in Australia's backyard uh, in the South Pacific Ocean. So it kind of flares up from time to time. And I think Macron knew exactly what he was doing. He was challenged by an Australian reporter who said, um, do you trust Scott Morrison, the Australian prime minister? Do you think he lied to you? And he just stopped dead, turned to the reporter and said, I don't think I know. And that is going to become uh, an opposition attack ad. You can guarantee it from this week until whenever the next election is in Australia. They'll just play it on loop over and over again. Uh, Ryan Heath, great pleasure to have you. By the way, I get this text in a minute ago. And, and if you're mad, if this makes you mad and you think this is stereotypical, it's not great. But ask your guest who's fantastic, by the way, that's in brackets. In excess, midnight oil, or crowded house. That's Ooh, again. I used to work for Peter Garrett, the lead singer of Midnight Oil. So I got to pick Midnight Oil. I love that guy, and I interviewed him in 2002 when they got back on the road and uh, before mm-hmm. before he went into politics, and uh, just just amazing. And seeing him like you, you won't see a bald man with longer arms thrash his arms around and, and be more entertained ever. <laughs> than seeing the oils, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. Get them, yep. okay. And yep. he's a grammar Nazi. He really nails you on the grammar. So is, if you go work for him, you better get your grammar right. Is he still in your phone? Could you could you text him for me and tell him to come back to Canada and Toronto sometime soon? I can do that for you, Greg. Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> Pete, uh, Ryan, great pleasure to have you on. And, and excellent. I, I am so appreciative of that. And that's one of the best name drops we've ever had on the show. Thank you for coming on. Awesome. Have a great day, guys. Ryan Heath, Senior Editor for Politico. Okay, yesterday, response from the league about the Chicago Blackhawks uh, sexual abuse scandal. Um, Look, they're not responsible for what happened within the Blackhawks organization until it becomes apparent something happened within the Blackhawks organization. And if that was indeed last spring, 
it's remarkable that things took this long. Joel Quenville banished from the league. Like he has to meet with Gary Bettman if he ever wants to coach again. Yet the assistant general manager, one of nine men in the room during the initial discussion about what to do about this, a video coach accused of sexually assaulting, um, a, you know, a pretty prominent prospect. Kyle Beach, I remember that 08 draft like it was yesterday. Stamkos, Dowdy, Petrangelo, Eric Carlson was in that draft. Um, the least drafted Luke Shen. So, you know, it's it wasn't perfect. But either way, um, Gary Bettman said this yesterday about Kevin Dayoff and why he, in essence, exonerated him, the Winnipeg Jets GM, from any responsibility. Uh, he thought the matter, based on his position and the information available to him, and the fact, as I said, that Aldridge subsequently departed the organization, uh, it, he thought it had been fully resolved by the people that he reported to. Kevin was such a minor player in this. Uh, and we, we discussed this with Reed Char, who did the investigation for Jenner and Block, that if I have this correct, and Bill will correct me if I'm wrong, um, when they were doing the investigation, the only person who placed Kevin in the room for the May 13th meeting was Kevin. Everybody else either forgot or didn't acknowledge that he was there. Now, again, there's some irony in, in terms of how funny that is. You know, if you're part of management, you're part of management. And the fact that eight people don't remember you being in the room, you may need to speak up more or get a better seat at the table or stand up and get a bagel at some point. But that's not great that they didn't remember he was even there. As it turns out, that ended up being a good thing. Meantime, on the NHLPA side, executive director Donald Fear says, well, the union should hire an outside law firm for an independent review of its handling of Kyle Beach's allegations of sexual assault. But they're still investigating themselves, okay? There's not a lot of uh, you know self-reflection in terms of that scenario. There were 80 players on a conference call yesterday, and this morning, Donald Fear still has his job. That says something to me as well. Uh, we had this gentleman on a couple weeks ago uh, talking about an issue with uh, local rinks and getting players in to warm up properly, uh, COVID restrictions, etc. cetera, um, but uh, worthy of, of finding out about hockey culture. I know he's got opinions about it. He's a friend of mine. Brad Legassi joins us, uh, an Ajax minor hockey coach. It's great to have you on, um, and, and you know, uh, I'm glad you can get in the rink. That extra 15 minutes, is that creating results, or is there a lot of, are, are you a coach under fire as well based on wins and losses, whether you're getting in the rink on time or not? Yeah, there's going to be a, a players only meeting soon. Yeah, we address that. Yeah, we we've uh, we've got closer, but we're still hitting second place, which is a tough tough look. Yeah, and tough too when twelve and thirteen year olds are talking on TikTok about your eventual fate as uh, as a future coach. That's not it's not a great feeling. I can imagine what you're going through. You will never drag me to TikTok, Brady. <laughs> That's not that not in the next seven minutes. I don't think when you we 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 talked uh, on the phone quite a while after the Wednesday interview, and uh, for all that people have seen in hockey, and that counts Graham James, and that counts Sheldon Kennedy. Um, maybe it's maybe I wasn't a parent back in the Sheldon Kennedy days in 1997, but I, I I was just I found it harrowing. I know you did also. What are your reflections even six days later before we get to sort of the Bettman stuff from yesterday? I, it's just tragic. I mean, that interview on TSN with Kyle Beach just just got me as a parent was uh, was just something was so hard to watch, but I had to watch it. You know, as a guy that is born with a hockey stick in my hand and playing hockey and just loving everything about hockey, it, it forces you to look in the mirror and say, what the hell is going on? 
Is there an element, if I were to say that it feels to some people like it is not changing enough with the times and other sports are, I, I know that's not true. And, you know, full disclosure, you coached my kid at the house league level. I not, I never saw a uh, more responsible, inclusive coach in my kid's four-year, uh, <laughs> less-than-stellar Hall of Fame uh, house league hockey career. That said... You know that that you, you know you worry maybe sometimes that you're an exception to the rule. Do you? I I don't. Well, there are. I mean, there are still elements of my game that I'm learning. I learned from an old man that yelled at us, and we grew up, you know, doing laps when we screwed up, and mm-hmm. and uh, it was it wasn't don't question the coach and it was everything for the team and keep your head down. And I have elements of that in my game, but as a dad, as a parent that parents differently than my parents did. Um, I try to incorporate some of those new things about being inclusive, being patient, being tolerant, uh, being accepting of, of things outside the rules. But I, it still creeps. Like, there is mean Coach Brad in there sometimes. What, what do you think the reaction is among players? Um, and, and I think your kids, at uh, the, the kids you're coaching right now, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, um, maybe there isn't as much discussion, but I know that if you were coaching, you know, I, I would say at a, uh, you know, at a tier two level, let's say, or a, you know, a junior B, junior C level, 16, 17 year olds, they'd be talking a lot of, about this from, from Wednesday beyond. What are some of the other reactions you're hearing to this? I think it's a tipping point. What I'm hearing now is that kids are way more aware uh, uh, than we were even. I think there's more options in their lives than we had. And I, I think hockey is just, I think you t- said it off the top, they're just way behind. They, they are Sharon Stone uh, wearing a bikini in 2020. They, they are not the same people. They can't be acting like they are the bell of the ball here. They have to be inclusive. They have to bring people to the table. And I think they're still trying to, I mean, Bettman drove me absolutely nuts on that. He was such a lawyer. He had all the opportunity to be proactive, be inclusive instead he tried to bully he tried to obfuscate he tried to filibuster he just he wouldn't even allow rick westhead who did the interview who did the uh great investigation reporting to get get us here to ask a question until he was forced to i mean they are still doing the same stuff and it's just hockey it, they're just waiting for the new cycle to flip over and stay the same and it's driving me insane uh, a little story here greg mm-hmm. we got big problems in ajax you know, coming back out of COVID, I know the GTHL had a tremendous drop in registration. Well, Ajax got pummeled. We yeah. actually closed a rink because there's not enough people that want to play hockey. If that's not a warning sign, I don't know what is. I know there's a rink in Port Perry, an older one that closed. Uh, they don't need, uh, I think they need two sheets of ice, whereas two years ago they needed four in a in a small community like that. And yeah, here's Rick Westhead tweeted yesterday, Brad Aldrich served nine months in jail for abusing a 16-year-old hockey player. That player and his family have been destroyed. I asked Gary Bettman today if the NHL will cover the family's counseling costs. Bettman needs, quote, more information really problematic stuff like you're not doing the basics let alone the complex stuff that fixes the problem from the inside that was a layup was it not yes pay pay for the pay for a 16 year old hockey player and his mental and emotional anguish to be counseled that that's it that's all we're asking it's tragic and and it's the same reason why kyle beach was made fun of allegedly by his teammates is the same reason why hockey's great and bad right it is team before self and here it is, he got sexually abused and he dared say something that was going to hurt the overall team collective uh, goal. 
I mean, I preach it myself. You know, you're part of a team. So do what's right for the team. But in reflection, that has negative negative implications here. And it scares the shit. Yeah. Yeah. Scares the crap out of me that, uh, you know, I'm in reinforcing some of these rules. I know it's one of those scenarios where uh, it, the, the language is different, how we govern ourselves are different, and we can't go back and be 14, 15-year-olds again and clean up some of the things we said, and, and we can't control some of the things that were said to us. But uh, I, I do, you know, I hesitate and I really struggle with the idea that, um, that you know, an, an NHL player, I never bought into it, and I hate saying it, I never bought into the fact that the NHL is just on the edge. They're, they're on the edge of having an out-and-out uh, openly gay player or several of them. We see it in the NFL this year, and honestly, nobody even gave a crap. Nobody shrugged a shoulder. He's, his name is Carl Nassim. He plays for the Las Vegas Raiders. Great. That's cool. The, are the Raiders going to win this weekend or are not? That's all NFL fans seem to care about. I worry in hockey, we're all up in each other's business about whether this would still be acceptable or not. What's your thought? I, I, I think you're not giving them enough credit. Hockey players, going back to that team before self, I think a hockey player is a hockey player. Once you go in, walk into the dressing room, is I mean, I preach it. I think the kids see it. They want to win a hockey game. And if that person has a different sexual orientation or doesn't look the same, they don't care. They're on a hockey team together and they're trying to win. So I really believe that, especially with the kids these days, that is not an issue. So it's so it's gotten better because 11 years ago, Beach documented that he'd go on the ice and he'd hear gay slurs pushed his way as if his incident was somehow consensual or the, or rumors were getting around that that it was consensual because he dealt with it 11 years ago at the highest level. I, I'm I agree. I think I think we've come, you know, decades forward in just one decade, but there's still work to do. There is. And I, I think we need to address that Kyle Beach situation head on, too. It, it is not a, a small, diminutive video coach uh, <clears throat> abusing, forcing himself upon a massive 20-year-old 20 20-year-old power forward. It is a power dynamic that, that made him do that. He, his goal in life since he started playing hockey was to play in the NHL. He's knocking on the door. He's sitting with an NHL team. And here is a, a guy telling him that if he doesn't do what he says, he is never going to realize his dream. I mean, that is the gun, proverbial gun to your head. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's no need to force yourself on somebody. There's, it's just the power over power boss secretary stuff it's, yeah it's, it's it's a, a terrible, terrible it's a terrible power dynamic uh that that i would argue makes kyle beach just shut down at some point tremendous trauma tremendous duress in the moment and also it's it's in the documentation that beach feels like he was drugged so there's that also and and heaven you know i think we can agree a predator might do something like that i gotta leave it there i love that discussion thanks and don't worry listen I, I i've said that word on the air before uh you know uh, but about 14 years ago when it was acceptable but that's okay that's what the parents were calling my coaching. Uh, I, I don't believe that. Not for one second. Hey, you get you get the first goal. Play like your two goals down out of the gate next game, and uh, and you got nothing to worry about. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Tips. All right, supply chain issues. We've talked about those before, and now I always think when we turn the corner on Halloween. Um, we get into thinking about Christmas and certainly long before uh, U.S. Thanksgiving, we start thinking about Christmas. And I think we're thinking about it earlier this year for those very reasons. 
that we hear at the supply chain. Neighbors talk about the supply chain. We weren't doing that two years ago or three years ago. Erica Alini from Global News joined us uh, a couple weeks ago and talked about it, and she's back, uh, and she's got another piece on globalnews.ca about it. So what should we be worried about with regards to holiday shopping? Is it the time that it'll take to get things, or is it that some things you won't be able to get, period, Erica? Hi, Greg. <clears throat> Thanks for having me on. Sure. Um, it's it's both. Um, so obviously, lead times are uh, quite long. Uh, so there's the chance that you'll order something and you won't get it in time. And there's also the chance that you just won't find um, what you're looking for. And uh, so one of the, um, the most common advice is uh, shop early and, and try to be flexible. Do you think most people will stick to online shopping? Um, there's some people that enjoy the retail experience. They sure enjoy it at Christmas. They like basically they're shoppers that like putting their hands on things. Are there any trends to suggest that we'll be a lot more back in stores? Small businesses weren't even available to us, Erica, to walk into for much of December last year. Uh, do you think we see an uptick in going in and making sure that it comes in because we, we're going to take it to our car or will people cross their fingers and just order online through the mail, through Amazon, et cetera? So I'm, I'm sure there's already been, um, you know, shops are open and people are going, uh, uh, are shopping in store because it's available. Um, but really the supply chain issues aren't so much a, a problem of how we're ordering things. It's just that we're ordering a lot of it, whether it's online or in store. Stores are having just as much trouble um, you know, uh, restocking. Um, and uh, so it, it's delays whether you order online and, and, you know, it's delays if you order online and the risk is finding that empty shelf or not finding that item that you're looking for if you go to the store. Erica Lini, our guest, uh, globalnews.ca, she's got a piece up on the supply chain issues. What are the biggest things? Uh, and I wouldn't even, you know, um, push this just into parents' directions, but what's going to be in short supply for anybody, parents or otherwise, when it comes to Christmas? So uh, you can speak of a broad category. So that I've heard there's a lot of uh, what are called uh, spot shortages. So a random item suddenly is not available in a particular, you know, from a particular supplier. So it's quite unpredictable, but broadly speaking, so toys is a big one, 85% of toys that go um, to the U.S., and you can imagine that probably the percentage is similar in Canada, come from overseas, come from Asia. Um, so that's a, that's a big one. Um, and uh, uh, electronics, huge problems there because of the chips shortage. It affects automakers. It also affects anything that has um, a chip <laughs> In it, uh, we've we've heard, you know, from Apple's, um, you know, they missed uh, their earnings, um, you know, lots and lots of uh, big electronics makers sort of warning that they're struggling with this uh, chips shortage, which can also be very unpredictable because there's so many things that go into, you know, a, a piece of electronics that you miss one the whole thing is on hold. Uh, so that's the challenge there, that they have very complex uh, supply chains. And also when you think about, uh, you know, it's not just laptops and tablets and phones, it's also increasingly, um, you know, even small kitchen appliances, anything that's smart, quote unquote, has a chip in it and, and is affected by this. Erica, you also write about Christmas trees, and then there's actually a, a delineation between real trees and supply and demand, and artificial trees and supply and demand. Explain that to our listeners. 
Yeah, so we are hearing uh, another broad category that's heavily affected is artificial Christmas Christmas trees and Christmas decorations for the same reason that a lot of them are made in Asia. And the, the additional challenge there is like these are very seasonal products, right? So they only have a short window to get there in time. And then if they miss that, then, you know, uh, it's, that's it for the year. Um, so the, in the U.S., they're expecting a shortage of artificial Christmas trees of between 20 and 25 percent. Um, here in Canada, I've asked a bunch of the largest retailers whether they're expecting a, a Christmas tree shortage as far as artificial trees. And I, they either didn't get back to me or wouldn't comment. So I'll leave it up uh, to listeners. They're very private, aren't they? Those Christmas tree people. You just you can't get them to say anything, can you? And uh, yeah, so then I contacted the um, you know our local uh, Christmas tree growers for for real Christmas trees <laughs> to ask you know what they're expecting. Um, so they're all ready. Uh, there are no supply chain issues there. Obviously, the trees grow here in Canada, and as far as the truck shortage. Um, trucks shortage, shortage of trucks and truck drivers, they said they don't expect that to to really impact them. The problem, though, is you saw, you know, we're all kind of still stuck at home. So going to the farm to get a Christmas tree was a very popular activity last year. They expect it's going to be the same this year. Mm. Um, and also, um, and also, you know, everyone who wanted a, a, a an artificial Christmas tree and can't get it, will they try to get uh, an actual tree? Yeah, we might have uh, a changing of the guard, uh, as it were. Erica Laney's piece is up on globalnews.ca. I know we'll touch base closer to uh, U.S. Thanksgiving weekend, Black Friday, etc. See where things are at. Thanks for updating us today. Thank you, Greg. You got it. Doug Ford is the premier of this province. Agree or disagree? No, I'm kidding. You know this already. He'll be traveling to Milton this morning. 11 a.m. is the announcement. He'll go with the labor minister, and the finance minister, and they'll announce an increase uh, to minimum wage. More on that in a second. What I wouldn't expect today, what I wouldn't expect is any further announcement, though we had one yesterday about um, mandatory vaccines at hospitals. We talked about it at the start of last hour. Yesterday, the health minister of the province uh, in Ontario says now, now is the time. She has enough responses from hospitals and healthcare groups. Now. She didn't the day before. No. I mean, last Friday, absolutely not. But now she's got the response. She didn't on Thursday or Friday. Now she's got enough responses from hospital and healthcare groups. Okay. This has to be one of the more hilarious narratives of the pandemic. What are these, my my university applications? Like, did people mail them in? Did no one call? Did no one email? You don't text anymore? You don't email? I mean, this was patently, obviously easy to gather this information weeks ago. Weeks ago. Long before you were going to get into a booster campaign that right now, right now, and I've given the province credit Credit, I think they were getting hammered unfairly for vaccine distribution in the spring. I think they did a very good job of that, let me say. But yeah, we can't figure out whether vaccinated healthcare workers want to work with unvaccinated colleagues. We can't figure out whether unvaccinated, frail and elderly people want to come into hospitals and have an unvaccinated person look at them. I just don't know. I see both sides of it. What? What's going on here? So the minimum wage thing and that announcement will probably take priority today. And it's a good story. Um, you can see this for probably what it is. Electioneering. I'll give you that. But nonetheless, the fact that it's happening 
is good news for some, not great news potentially if your business is struggling. And a lot of restaurants and bars certainly are. I want to bring on a gentleman we spoke to yesterday. And, uh, and you know, I like uh, when we have sort of breaking economic news, no better place to go. Our uh, economics professor from Ryerson University is Eric Camp. What, what, what does this move signify to you besides the fact we have an election coming in seven months? And is it, it is a good news, bad news scenario for workers vis-a-vis businesses? Every economic change, Greg, is a good news, bad news scenario. So let's back up for a second and bring out that this is a really fascinating topic. I mean, it's one of the questions that the students ask, that people ask all the time. What happens in a capitalist economy when you raise the minimum wage? And so what happens is you've got two competing effects. So number one, when you raise the minimum wage, there's going to be, the data says, an increase in labor supply. People will look at that increase in their hourly wage and tend to want to work more. But at the same time, there's going to be a decrease in labor demand, which says that employers are going to look at their wage bill going up and they can uh, decrease the number of people that they hire. So you have an increase in labor supply and a decrease in labor demand. So like so many things in the economy, the question is which effect is larger? So I know you like data, you don't like just guessing. So let's go to the data. And here's the interesting fun fact. Raising the minimum wage by $1 or approximately 6% in Ontario does not significantly raise unemployment, which means that this people working effect is outweighing the higher labor cost effect. So to your question of, is this a good thing? Well, guess what? Even to a conservative economist like myself, yes, it does tend to be positive. But let me just say this Mm -hmm. as I'm rambling, you've got to be careful. You can't continue this forever. I hear people say, if it can be $15, can't it be $20 or $25? And the answer is, well, how high do you want the unemployment rate to be? Because as we said, at $1, you have more people working outweighing the number of employers that may not hire that extra person. But at some point that's gonna turn around and you'll have an unemployment problem. So like Mm. most things in the economy, it's questioning which effect is stronger. It's it's a weird one too, because the $15 that you'd pay somebody per hour, you and I are in Toronto. We're talking to people mostly in Toronto. So they get that that doesn't take you very far, but it's not dissimilar to you know, other other businesses and other careers. If you're a professor at Nipissing University and not, uh, and you know, you can dream um, at Ryerson University, or I'm working in radio in Sudbury and not Toronto, I'm not going to get paid the same amount of money. I can take that dollar a lot further with my cost of living. So for brass tacks uh, across Ontario, this is great in some of the smaller towns, in, in Owen Sound, in Capus Casing. It doesn't really move the needle for people that are waiting tables necessarily in Toronto, does it? No, Greg, but you're a visionary when you brought that up, because what you're really talking about is that there's a nominal wage, which is this $15 an hour. But then there's a real wage, which is that nominal wage divided by the price level. And that's really what we have to be worried about. So going back to your question, is this good? The nominal wage is going to go up, which means technically there's something called the reservation wage. Some people, skeptics, of course, not me, call it the couch wage, which is what is the dollar amount that will get you out of the labor market into the labor market? And you may think that $1 an hour isn't significant, but it is. That will get a lot of people to move from being unemployed 
to employed. And so now you're thinking, well, Eric's telling me it's going to be completely rosy. It's not going to be completely rosy. There is one detrimental effect. As we say, as economists, there is no free lunch. You can rest assured that whatever this wage bill increase is to people that own firms, they're going to pass this on to consumers. Now, that means inflation. And people are saying, well, there's already inflation. I can feel it when I go to the grocery store and the gas station. So does this inflation matter? Well, no, it's not going to be as significant as what's going on thanks to CERB. But just so you know that there is no free lunch, prices mm. will go up. This will get passed on to consumers. So it's good news if you're one of the people entering the labor market. It's bad news if you're one of the people that's going to pay extra because of it. Dr. Eric Ham, our guest from Ryerson University. I mean, I'm getting these texts from people saying, well, that person's making more tips or making more tips working, uh, you know, and I'm like, yes. And then if they want to go out for a drink after their shift is over, <laughs> their beer costs $7 in Toronto. It doesn't cost three fifty at, uh, you know, wherever Walter White went when he was hiding out in Breaking Bad uh, in that snow, snowy bar when he was watching his uh, his ex-girlfriend on TV. Whatever. It, 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 it Like the cost of living. Again, we keep coming back to it. What you're paying for rent, there's sustainable minimum wage jobs. We all have worked those jobs. There's a certain point when you want to get out of that mode and get into what I guess what we call a salary and a career. And the $15 is great if you're 19 years old and you're a university student. It's not great if you're 30 and you're trying to make ends meet with a family. No, but Greg, let's remember that a lot of this is talking exactly about who is this going to benefit? And not to sound arrogant, but this isn't going to change your life. It's not going to change my life, but it is going to change the life of somebody who's trying to feed their family or pay their rent. And that's why it's a positive thing. The unemployment effect, as some people, you'll hear today, some people cry and say, this is going to put a ton of people out of work. Well, spoiler alert, it's not. But don't ever forget about the price level. Don't ever forget about the things are going to cost more when you go to the grocery yeah. store and think so it's a balancing act economics is a balancing act but if you're going to ask me a yes or no answer is this a good thing especially in the time of a labor shortage if it brings more people into the labor market it's a good thing i got about a minute it seems like a safe political move as well and i said it earlier I, i'd maintain this i think for andrea horvath i think for Stephen del duca this puts them back on their heels a little bit you know she called yesterday she's like restore the minimum wage so okay doug ford does it now what do you say it's it's not unlike the spring when you know i went crazy on the air oh all these youth sports are closed down and my 78 year old dad pl can't play golf we didn't hear a peep from the opposition parties because they were afraid to question the lockdowns like i, I think this is actually politically astute it may not have much of an economic impact but i think people everyone's like oh who's this going to fool when it comes to going to vote well people are really easily fooled when they vote and i'll leave it at that you know what? It'll have an economic impact. It has a political impact. We both know that the opposition parties are going to say that if you were going to raise it a dollar, Mr. Ford, why didn't you raise it two dollars right. or three dollars? But let's not forget that it's really not difficult to be an opposition member because you can say whatever you want. Somebody actually has to run the province. And this is a good move at the right time. Dr. Cam, great stuff. Thanks very much. Uh, hitting double duty on this uh, breaking story last night. We love having you on. You'll get my bill. Stay healthy, Greg. I will. I know. Yeah, it's uh, cash only. Tens and twenties uh, at an undisclosed location. Eric Cam joining us uh, from Ryerson University. Really appreciate you checking out the Toronto Today podcast. You can find us obviously on Apple Podcasts and wherever you find uh, the pods. But 
Apple may be the best place uh, to find us, the most common place to find us. So look there. We'll have a live show back tomorrow on Wednesday morning for November the 3rd. Hope you can join us for some of it, if not all of it, and appreciate you listening. Have yourself a great day. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.